0: good afternoon folks and welcome to this week's episode of the legal beagle podcast this week we're joined by brian labovic all the way from miami florida mr labovic i'm saying your name labovic do i have that right you got it right on the Le- money labovic Welcome. I- huh i said welcome
1: Thank you. Super excited to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, of course. So we were talking before we jumped
1: on about your, uh, your glorious Florida tan there. How's the weather down in Florida? The weather in Florida is spectacular. So I've got kids all over the country. I've got one out in Denver. Uh, I had one up in Ohio until last week, and then I have one in Washington, D.C. And we have the nicest weather here in Florida, the coolest weather, the nicest weather, the best weather. I mean, it's incredible. So
0: you and your wife are home base and the kids are all <laughs> spread out around the country.
1: Yeah, we're, we're at that young 20s age for our, our kids, so they're all over the place now, Well, which is kind of cool. You,
0: yeah, I bet it is. I, I had a question. I saw on your website you have offices in Florida, but you have
1: one up in Massachusetts. How did you end up with an office up there? So um, I also own a medical billing company, and that medical billing company does medical claims all over the country. We have claims in California and Michigan and Texas uh, and in Massachusetts. And in Massachusetts, similar to Florida – there's a collection action that we can bring for the the medical providers, and it's a legal action. So not all states have that ability to bring that little legal action. And so I set up an office there just to direct the litigation for those medical providers. So for doctors and hospitals in Massachusetts, we set that up. Gotcha. That's the only thing we do there. We don't gotcha. do injury work there. We don't do social security there of any significance. So all your practice is really down in Florida. Your for the most part. Law. So the the social security disability practice is all over the country. We probably have a client in every single state in the union. Oh. But wow. the workers comp and the PI practice is all Florida based. Gotcha. So we're here to
0: talk about a hot new summer read that everyone should put on their uh, put on their their calendar to read this summer at the beach. It's called Not a Good That's Neighbor. It. Not a Thank Good Neighbor you. It's a lawyer's guide to beating big insurance. I'm I'm going
1: to one second. Hold on. I got to get it here so that you can see it. I've got a giant stack of them here because my marketing department is using them. But here is the book. Not not a a good good neighbor. neighbor. I should have had it ready. What prompted you to write this book? So um, a couple of things prompted me to write the book. Number one, uh, after 30 years of injury practice, you kind of develop a reputation and you develop kind of a motif in your injury world work, right? And our motif has been for the most part to do cases of relative significance. And what ends up happening is that we start down the path of a case, and then we find out that a person's file really doesn't fit our profile, and we need to try to help them out. And we wanted to give them an opportunity to be helped out, but their case really doesn't demand either a lawyer to be involved or litigation to be involved, and we wanted a solution for those people. So this book is part of that solution for, for a lot of people, where they can go ahead and get their own case settled, not pay an attorney's fee, get the maximum out of the, the value out of that particular case. And so it was just trying to help people. And that's, that was the main motivation. I had a, a client inspire me to do it. So Well, it's a, it's a really easy book to read. And I say
0: that from the perspective of a non-lawyer. It's easy to read as a lawyer, certainly, but as a non lawyer, you really do a great job of explaining the concepts in the book and kind of walking people through the process. We may disagree on one point. You say that not everyone needs a lawyer, and I actually agree with you on that, but the reason for that may be different between the two of us. Why do you think that not everyone needs a lawyer?
1: I think that personally, there are many situations where the lawyer doesn't add value to the claim for the, for the prospective client. And my goal is always to add more value than we take in service in dollars. So I want to make sure that I'm always adding more value than the person can do without the service of the lawyer. And, and by keeping that formula, I think that we keep our reputation intact. Um, and that's why, what I mean by try to create situations where we don't add enough value to the case that this book can get them to where they need to go without having a lawyer involved. Well, I guess we do disagree, or we do agree, not disagree, because oh, that's
0: a, that's exactly what I say to people: if we can't add value, if we can't add value more than what we would take out of the case, then there's no reason to hire us, and and we're exactly aligned in that way. There are some attorneys that I've heard that don't want cases because all they're looking for is the big fish, all they're looking for is the big multi-million-dollar claims. And so they won't take anything else. And it leaves a big group of the, the population without help, without resources when they really could benefit from a lawyer. So I like the way you just explained that because I agree with that idea of if I can't provide
1: value, then you're better off doing this alone. And I totally agree with that. Cool. Yeah, I think that you and I are on the exact same page. There are, and, and there's the room in the market for that, right? So there are um, businesses in the market who only want that seven figure and above case And if you don't have a seven-figure and above case, then they really don't have a space in their business model for you. That's not my business model. My business model is to help a lot of people. We have, uh, I don't want to say we have a, a mill practice because we certainly don't. We don't come close to that mill practice. Like There are some practices here that drag in 20, 30, 50 people a week, and that's not our practice model. But we definitely like to work on cases where we add value. And there are just some cases out there, unfortunately, at least in Florida, where the insurance profile of all the parties involved don't give an opportunity to the plaintiff to really get value out of having an attorney involved. So that's just a fact, a commercial fact in my neighborhood. So
0: in a day and age where most attorneys, uh, including myself, I'm not certainly the exception, we tout these big outcomes and these big awards or verdicts and we talk about how great we are and and we celebrate all the victories. You take an interesting turn or twist in this book. You talk about a lot of losses. Why did you do that? You're very humbling in the way you describe. You didn't just go through and say, let me tell you about all the seven-figure victories. You went through and said, let me tell you when I got my butt handed to me. Why did you do that?
1: I think it's important that people know that you know, you don't, you don't learn as much from your victories as you do from your defeats, right? Like you just learn. So if you're, if you're a, a conscientious human being and you care about what you do, you know, like if you care at all about learning the lessons of getting good, getting competent at being a great trial lawyer, you're going to get lost. If you're not trying cases, you're not losing cases, right? Like you're going to end up losing cases. You should have won and you're going to end up winning cases. You probably should have lost. That's I mean, six human beings on a jury, at least in Florida, get to make that decision. There are six organic creatures there. Right. I can't control them. I'm not a Svengali. People think, oh, the lawyers are so good at, you know, manipulating and controlling. But it's just not true. I mean, there's two very smart lawyers or four sometimes on each side of the case, you know, two and two. And we put that in front of a jury and those six people get together and create an organic, you know, outcome and sometimes that goes my clients' way and unfortunately sometimes it doesn't. So I just wanted people to get a real good sense of what the lessons were out there. So I'm I thank you. I appreciate the humble comment cuz I want to be a humble person. I wouldn't say that my friends call me a humble person, but well I was I was humbled when I read I
0: was like, "Wow, this guy isn't just citing one off script type loss. He re, you go through and you talk about time and time again, different situations where it didn't go the client's way and, and what you learn from that. And so uh, the example I'm using, uh, there's one where you talk about, you thought you had a great jury. You thought you presented a great case. You were looking for a pretty big outcome in pain and suffering and futures. And you got uh, 2000 in pain and suffering and
1: 5000 in futures, if I have that right. That's exactly right. Yeah, I remember the case very well unfortunately. How And we got a great a great verdict on future economics. Right. So I ended up having a multi hundred thousand dollar future economic verdict and the jury just wouldn't buy the the poor woman's pain and suffering.
0: So how do you explain that to clients? That pain and suffering because that's a hard thing for us to explain to
1: clients. So you know, when you when you want to explain it to a client we talk about it in terms of the stories of your life and how you're impacted in the stories of your life. And that's the type of thing that you want to be able to express to a jury, right? Those are the things that resonate when a jury hears that a person could do something or was very committed to doing something previously and now that's been taken away from them and they don't have the ability to do that. A lot of times that's family things, a lot of times that's children related activity. We hear a lot of that especially from, you know, females who have been involved in accidents and get hurt. They really miss their capacity to participate in their children's lives. So, so that's the stories of pain and suffering from now and into the future. But there are some people who are just not very good at expressing that for themselves. And this particular young lady, although she was definitely hurt and she definitely had a real case and she was going to suffer into the future, she had a really hard time as much as we worked with her on it. When she got on the stand, she froze and we just didn't get a very good feel to the jury of how she was going to suffer into the future. And that reflected itself in the verdict, unfortunately. Um, and I remember when it when it occurred, I mean, I took a break from the the trial and we ended up luckily being able to take an early lunch break and at the lunch break i tried to coach her and i was like you have got to open up to this jury they've got to see who you are and she got a little better and warmer on the stand but it definitely came back and, and hurt us on the verdict unfortunately we had but a, we a, try a, to coach our clients in my firm i don't know about you guys but we built a courtroom like we have a literal courtroom if i could walk the camera into my courtroom you'd be like holy cow that's a palm beach county courtroom it looks identical. The, the 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 jury box, the witness stand, the judges stand, the council tables, the flag, the seal of Florida, it's a literal courtroom. So we train our people and we go and work with our people there. And we want our witnesses as well as our, our clients to feel comfortable when they walk into court and still people freeze. It's hard. Yeah, you talked about that in the book because you
0: had that case where the lady got on the stand and <clears throat> just said everything was her fault when it clearly wasn't. And just basically wilted up there on the witness stand. And you said, yeah. you know what? We have a courtroom. We now take people through that so they don't get caught off guard their first time in a courtroom. And I think that's a brilliant idea because I, those things happen, right? Those things can really yep. occur. And all of a sudden, chest, testimony changes or people recant what they'd said in a deposition. And you're like, well, wait, wait, what's happening right now? I think And that, you just some,
1: recently went back to trial, right?
0: I did. Yeah, I had two. I had We had one through the American Arbitration Association that was a four-day uh, bench trial. And then we had uh, an actual jury trial uh, just last week. And Did you as, come out okay? We won the the bench trial. We lost the the jury trial. And, and that goes back oh. to what you just said, which is juries are unpredictable. And you just don't know. You try to pick the best jury. You you try to put on the best case you can. But at the end of the day, and we told our client this, even when they were out deliberating, you just don't know what they're going to decide. And the reason that they're going to decide one way or the other and it's unfortunate, and it you know breaks my heart for the client, and and certainly you know we felt the effect of that as well. But this is what we do for a living, and so I can absorb mm-hmm. that a little bit differently than someone that that one case they have, maybe the only case they ever have in their lifetime, and and that's, that's what's right. that's what's hard for me on the on the American arbitration case. The judge gave us no futures on that case. The defense did a pretty decent job of making. Our client looked like a, a faker and a fraud. and the reality is he's not. and funny enough, the case is over, and he just sent uh, he can't travel he's he's really disabled now and he can't travel. and they made it seem like all of this is one big show. He just sent me a, a text message uh, saying his family went out to l a for their son's graduation from USC. He couldn't go. he you know he's back home oh, sure. in, in Brooklyn by himself and that's the reality, right? That's the reality of what we do. It's like I know and I'm like, man, if I could have just the judge could have just heard that and understood this guy wasn't faking. He's not like on a plane out to the West Coast. He's really suffering from his injuries. And you know, it's unfortunate that you don't get you don't get to have the trier of fact see everything that you really get to see in the the working up of the case. And that's that's disappointing true. sometimes. So um, yeah, you know, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So um, you have some. <laughs> You have some funny stories in your book. I got to ask about Ed the Elephant. I I read that and I highlighted it about the client who ran away to the circus. Is this a real
1: story, Brian? That's a real story. That's a real story. I mean, yeah, that was one of the the heartbreak stories. Uh, There are are these, these moments that you go through as a young trial lawyer, right? You take on these people's lives, right? And I would take on these people's lives and I, and I would take them on in a way that I truly lived them. And I, and I, you know, like it, it became my problem, my life, you know? And, uh, and when, when that person came to me days before trial and said, you got to settle the case, I'm running away. I'm going to join the circus. That was one of those scars that taught me, you have to separate yourself from your client. Like You can just like, that was such a deep cut scar because I was so invested in this person's life. And for her to just be like, I'm going to join the circus. Wow. That was crazy.
0: I'm not laughing at you, Brian, but the absurdity, when I read it, I did laugh. I was like the absurdity of that happening. I cannot believe that's a real story.
1: It's a true story. It's a true story. I've I've got so many, I'm sure you do too, but after 30 years of practicing law, I've got so many client stories, and then so many employee stories. I've got employee stories that would, if if you had more hair than me, you'd pull it out because I mean, <laughs> I've got much crazy more. employee stories. Like, you know, just these, I, I feel like writing for LA law or something because these stories are so absurd. So tell me, why is it that you think insurance
0: companies make it so difficult for people and really are reluctant to
1: pay what we call fair value on claims? I think for insurance companies it's a matter of data and money and they do a very good job understanding the data, understanding the actual risk, knowing what risk they can sustain, looking forward 50 years into this, you know, time horizon of investment perspective where they they think to themselves if we do this, we're going to have this much money. And if we invest it this way, we'll have this much money. And this is how much we'll have to give to people. And their risk analysis is just way better than ours. Their data analysis is better than ours. We deal in this human endeavor and they deal in data. And this is just a matter of data for them. It's it's not a human issue. So you talk in your book, you have a chapter, uh, a, whole, a whole section about
0: AI and the these systems, these programs that these insurance companies have. I know this book is encouraging people in the right situation to try to handle this themselves. But it sounds like from that chapter, the way I read it is those systems aren't really equipped to have uh, a input portion where you can talk about the pain and suffering. You can talk about the real losses, the loss of enjoyment. How would you counsel someone, not representing them, let's just take that out of the equation for a second, but just giving someone general advice and saying, look, read my book. It can help you but how do they get the message
1: across that this did impact them in some way? You know, I I don't believe that they're going to be able to do that without having the power of litigation under their belt with negotiating a a pre-litigation settlement. So when a person takes on this, this role of I'm going to advocate for myself, they have to recognize that they're not going to get full value for the case. They're going to try to get more value than what the lawyer will get them out of the case if the lawyer's involved because of the cost and the expense and going after a certain amount of insurance that's available. But they're gonna discount their case. No insurance adjuster is gonna give a a regular citizen the same money that they'll give an experienced trial lawyer, right? That's just a fact. And so part of the book does talk about that analysis of you need to come to the conclusion that you're not gonna get full value for your pain and suffering. That's gonna be discounted, right? And your goal is to create such a persuasive case on the economic, uh, economic side that you can get enough value or full value out of what's available in insurance so that you can close the case without having to pay a lawyer to do it. And that's really where that balance lies. I love that.
0: I love to hear you say that because I think you're right in the sense that you won't get full value without an attorney helping you, really an experienced trial attorney helping you. I won't just say any attorney. And, and I'm glad to hear you say that because I think there are people who might read this book and believe, oh, I don't need a lawyer at all. I can just do it myself. Yeah, they can, and I think you you equip them quite well.
1: But they have to understand the discount that they're they're going to take in order to do that themselves. And, and it'll be a significant discount. I mean, like that's you're going to get a significant discount anytime you try to deal with an insurance company on your own. They're built for that, right? Yeah, they're built to they're built to make it hard for us. And we do this professionally. So you think that we know the systems and we provide them the information they need and that we give them the data the way they need the data so that they can maximize that value. So the adjuster, my perspective is that most adjusters would love to get the claim off their desk, right? They're bound to some AI formula that says, here's your range, here's your bonus money, get it settled in this amount, right? And my goal is to try to give them enough data that they go back and say, okay, I need a range here and I need to get there, right? that's kind of the pre-litigation goal of the PI trial lawyer is to get them out of the range and into a better range. Um, but you know, they they are who they are. They just want to get this case settled. So
0: it's going to be interesting to see how insurance, how that industry evolves as more autonomous vehicles become available, more technology is incorporated into our daily lives as it relates to, uh, minimizing the potential for, uh, car accidents. And I'm, 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 I heard grumblings from a defense attorney that actually worked with State Farm about like them pivoting and starting to invest in different things because of this concern down the road. Like you said, looking decades ahead, not just a couple years ahead, but looking so far ahead is what does this landscape look like 25 years from now, 50 years from now?
1: Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Well, as a guy who drives a Tesla, I can tell you that the technology is getting better and better. It's a pretty cool technology that's out there now. Do you do the self-driving mode when you're out and about? I did, and I and, do, you, and I use it all the time. Now,
0: I don't have a Tesla. I've had other vehicles that have a, autonomous technology on it. Do you? Can you take your hands off the wheel
1: completely, or do you have to still kind of touch it every few seconds? You have to touch it about every fifteen seconds to let it let you know it know that you're still awake and alive and, and watching it. Cadillac is the only technology that watches you. In other words, they have a camera on the driver, and when the driver looks away, it starts to beep and say, "Pay attention to the wheel." Tesla doesn't do that. But Tesla, about every 15 seconds, depending on how fast you're going, um, will start to beep at you and say, pay attention to the wheel. And if you get caught three times, not paying attention to the wheel, then it'll turn off. Gotcha. So you can't just take a nap. You can't no. just, uh, fall asleep. You can't crawl the back seat. You can't undo your seatbelt. There's a lot of things you can't do, but what you can do is you can set it on cruise control. You can set it on autonomous mode. It'll follow 70 miles an hour down the highway and you can just leave your hand at the bottom of the wheel and just let it kind of drag there and keep your eye kind of generally on the road and not worry about it at all and it it does an amazingly good job
0: it's fascinating it's it's really i just wrote a, an article about the evolution of self-driving vehicles and and just looking at the different iterations where we've come and where we're going and it's really an interesting um concept overall. And it'll be even more interesting as we, we start to see these vehicles on the roadways. They, are they testing them in Florida? They're testing them all over Arizona. We see them out. I haven't seen
1: any autonomous test vehicles in Florida yet.
0: Okay. Yeah. We have a bunch here. I think, uh, I'm trying to think of who's who, what companies have them out here. There's a few and they, they're all over and there's constantly mapping and driving. And there's always, always a driver behind the wheel, but it's, I mean, they're supposed to be fully functional. They can change lane, stop, brake, Turn into shopping plazas, everything is pretty, they're pretty very wild.
1: slow though. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I've noticed they're like incredibly defaulted to safety, right? Correct. So it's always like, you, you know, you have to have tremendous lead time to make a right turn or a left turn. I mean, they're really focused on the safety of it to the point that you wonder if they're creating a traffic hazard because people anticipate cars to move in a certain reasonable function and these cars are unreasonably safe. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about it that way, kind of the inverse effect of their safety
0: almost causing more harm than than good. So you you talk about uh you talk about Chris Voss. Chris Voss uh never split the difference in your in your book. I love Chris Voss. I read his book. I want to know
1: I'm sitting here looking at (laughs) my There it is. (laughs) So and I'm a total book freak. Let me tell you dude. I've got if you can see it I've got a whole list of my books here of like all the people that I love in my in my my library of good advisors. And so Chris tell Ross, me who, tell me who they are. That's that was going to be my question. Who who are your other ones? What are your must reads? Okay, so um the book that this camera is on right now for anybody who owns a business, uh Patrick Lencioni The Advantage. So Patrick Lenciona wrote The Five Dysfunctions of Team, The Advantage, and Ideal Team Player, which I'm going to show you this. This is a mandatory book for you and your staff to read. The it Ideal is the team best team-building book for businesses that I've ever read in my life. It's just The concept is simple, it's brilliant, and it works well, and it allows you to articulate when people are behaving outside the team norm, and that really is very powerful for a business owner. Um, so, so those are like huge must reads. I think Patrick, Patrick Lencioni, everything he re- writes is brilliant, but those are the three top, um, Chris Voss never split the difference is, is brilliant. Um, anything Cameron Harold reads, you know, writes, he's a, a management guy. He wrote vivid vision, um, double, double, some other really great books on business, brilliant COO type. He, he's the one who turned 1-800 got junk into something huge. Um, so he's a, another brilliant person, anything from Vern Harnish. I don't know if you've heard of scaling up,
0: Mm -mm, but scaling
1: up Vern Harnish is ridiculously bright and, and amazing. Um, Robert Caldini, who's an advertising executive, um, and his book is, is, uh, there's a new book that I read called different by young moon, young moon, me, I think, um, a professor at Harvard, uh, brilliant book on how to advertise your firm so that you can give a difference between yourself and every other product on the shelf. You know, like at this point, being a PI lawyer is like being a box of cereal. You can be, you know, like Kellogg, you can be Post, you can be Raisin Bran, you can be like, there's a gazillion flavors and we all taste the same, right? So she's she talks about how important it is to separate yourself and be different and have a voice. So, so you give really, it-
0: that segues nicely into my next question. You give an interesting, I've never considered this before. I actually think it's actually a a fantastic suggestion. You talk about how people should find a lawyer. And and can you walk me through, I, I, I know what, I can explain it through the book. I read, read the book, but I want you to explain it. Like why you think people should go out of state to find a lawyer.
1: So, you know, if not out of state, at least out of County, you know i I think that going out of state is probably a lot to ask a lot of people, but what ends up happening is that if you if you look in your main area, you're gonna end up finding a lot of people who just refer to the same kind of group of people where when you look outside of your area, you get people who look into your market and say who can really do the job that this person needs done so when somebody calls me and they ask me for a referral, it's just the inverse of what I do for people, right? So when somebody calls and says, Hey, I need a, I need a lawyer in New York. Like today I, I had a med mal lawyer that I needed to find in New York city. And, uh, and they asked me. And so I dug in like what type of a med mal lawyer and why do you need it? And what's the situation? And is it a baby brain damage baby case? Or is it a negligent, you know, nursing home case or what exactly is the situation? And then I go out and I find the person who's going to be the best person to maximize the value of that case for the person for two reasons. Number one, because I'm going to get a referral fee. So I want to make it the best for me, which is not the primary reason, but is a motivating factor, right? So we are both working in the same direction. I'm working for their best benefit, which also works for my firm's benefit. And so I want to find the best person who can maximize the value for the client. And I think that's why you look outside of your area, because when you look inside your area and you just look at tv or you look at the people who kind of inter refer to each other you don't really get a fair evaluation of your market
0: it's it's an interesting thought because i would never consider telling someone at least i hadn't until i read this this book hey if you really want a lawyer in wyoming you know you could start here in arizona or in florida where you are brian and and ask people there if they know anyone or have any contacts in wyoming cuz they're probably better suited to find someone who's actually going to be good at what they do, as opposed to just Googling Wyoming lawyer and, and doing it right. that way. And I, I just never thought about the idea of saying, go out of market, or at least you you just said out of county, to find the credible, really experienced and, and good attorneys that practice in certain areas. And you know the mistake that people make, and I, I imagine you would agree with this, is no one has a problem understanding that doctors have specialties. No one has a problem with that. You go to a gynaecologist for a reason, you go to an oncologist for a reason, you go to an orthopedic for a reason. No one has a problem with that. With attorneys, apparently, according to my friends and family, I do everything, even though I only do personal injury. I do everything. <laughs> if they need a will, if they need um, a contract matter, you know, handled, if they need and I'm like, that there are there are attorneys that do very specific things. And for a reason, because as you can appreciate in personal injury, it is a big area of practice. I mean, there are people in personal injury who just practice in medical malpractice, as you just said, that's all they do. And so that's all they should do. That's all they should do. Exactly. And so I think that the mistake people make is I just need a lawyer. and, And that's, that could be devastating to their case. They really need someone who understands the complex problem that they're in, and it can help them navigate the murky waters that lie ahead.
1: So you probably get this too, but once I have attached to a client and especially if I've tried a case for a client, they know my cell number, they know my my personal life, they know what I'm doing. Like we just you end up having this friendship with the people, right? And so you end up getting these phone calls afterwards. Like yesterday I got a call from a woman who I represented her twice. I represented her and then I represented her daughter um, in two different cases. But she knows me now and it's been 10 years. Right. So I haven't heard from her in probably five. And she called me yesterday, tearfully begging me to take her immigration case because her niece needs to come from Haiti because she's got a problem with a niece in Haiti who's in a terrible situation. She sounds like she's in a terrible, awful situation, but I'm not sure how she expects me to help her with her immigration case. She called me so like I felt so bad and I and I tried to find her somebody so I gave her a couple of names, but she really had a hard time believing. Like I couldn't help her. I had to like talk her off the wall. Of you need to help me, Mr. Lubovic. Only you can help me, Mr. Lubovic. I'm like, I can't. I don't know. I know that I knew the other stuff, but I don't know this. Right, right. Tell me about Brian outside of
0: the practice of law. Tell me about things uh, that you like to do. What you're about. Just give me a I'm kind so of boring a,
1: outside the practice. Oh, that's, of law. that's
0: not true. You seem dynamic. Tell <laughs> me about know, what. I'm
1: like, what all right. So, um it, it's an interesting transition. Um my whole life I've been like a total family guy. I really am. I'm like super family oriented. My wife is my partner in the firm and so we've been together basically since you know like we 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 graduated law school together. She became a state attorney for Janet Reno, I became a US attorney down in Miami at the justice department. And then once we both went into private practice, Mm -hmm. she worked for NCCI for a couple of years doing national, um, compensation fraud and then joined me. Right. So now for 27 years, we've been practicing together Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and raising a family together. And now our kids are older and I'm trying to find out who Brian Lubovic is again. Right. Mm -hmm. Because all of a sudden I've got like time for Brian Lubovic again. So Brian Lubovic likes to do a lot of boating. I mean, I have I have a couple of boats, uh, not big boats, but two small boats. I I love the water. I like uh, spear fishing a lot, so I don't just love fishing as much as I like spear fishing. I like active kind of movement things. Um, and is I spe- and I love the is water. spear
0: fishing where you're on the boat and you literally have a spear and you you like chuck it through a fish. Is that what no. it? I don't I don't. I'm in Arizona. I don't have a I don't have spear fishing yeah. here.
1: That's so funny. So um, there's. There's spear fishing with a gun in the water. You basically have a spear gun and you hunt larger fish with a spear gun, or you can hunt smaller reef fish, like hogfish and snappers and groupers and things like that off the reefs. And that's with usually a pole spear, which is predominantly what I do. And almost always when we do that, we're free diving. So we're not using tanks when we do that. Now, a lot of my friends do use tanks and a lot of my friends use guns. And they go out and they go for very large fish. They go for large pelagics. They do a lot of big, scary stuff. I've got a friend of mine who loves picking fish off the back of sharks. So like he's willing to be a little crazy. That's not my MO. My MO is to go out and get dinner and enjoy that and hunt for my dinner. And I get a great sense of satisfaction doing that. When you, so that's kind of like my fun thing. When you spearfish like that and you free dive,
0: it, when you hit a fish, do you? does the fish sink? Like, do you have to dive down
1: and grab it? Or does it? Usually it tries to swim away. You'd be surprised how strong a small fish is. So you hit a fish and it doesn't just die. It swims and it takes off or it dives into a hole or it tries to escape you. Now, every once in a while you get lucky and you go right through it and, you know, it'll float to your bag. But a lot of times you get halfway through that fish and he's pulling you, especially a grouper. Like if you get a decent sized grouper on a pole spear, you're going for a ride. And you have a line on your spear, right? Is that how you kind of stay with the fish? Depends on the, depends on the, the pole spear. Some do, some don't. Depends on if you're hunting with a Hawaiian sling. There's a lot of different ways that you can do it. So the Hawaiian sling is like, um, it's a, it's a, it's a wooden, um, it's a wooden, um, handle and a hole goes through it and the spear goes through it and it has a rubber band on the handle and you pull it back and you shoot it like an arrow, like a bow and arrow in the line. Now are, you, are you shooting it? You're not, you're not underwater when you're shooting. Are right? you shooting above the surface? No, or are you no, 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 you're underwater. You're underwater. You're underwater, swimming under the water. Yeah. You're you're diving with flippers and then under the water with a weight belt on, trying to get down 20, 30 feet and hold your breath. And it's kind of cool. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. And it's fun.
0: Did any of the kids pick up on this? Like, are the kids able all to my go? Kids, on? They can all my do kids it. Will
1: do this. Yeah. Any of my kids can do this. Yeah. Wow. They all grew up in the water. My kids know the water better than me. My kids drive the boat better than me. Yeah, they're all totally fluent in water sports.
0: So I'm going to let you gloat as a, as a dad, now that your kids are adults, what what prompted them to all go elsewhere and either go elsewhere for school or go elsewhere for work? Why, why did they all spread out about the country?
1: Um, so my daughter is uh, my first and she went away to college and when she graduated college, she became very, very politically active. So I'm, I'm proud of her because she is so incredibly politically active and so out there. And she's been all over the country following her dream, um, being a part of politics. So now she's in Washington, D.C., and she's uh, in third round interviews for a job in the administration. Um, one of the jobs is in the White House. Another job is in health and human services. So that's kind of her gig. And she's in D.C., so I'm proud of her for that. My other son, uh, my middle son, uh, who's my oldest son, graduated uh, last year, and he and a bunch of buddies decided to go out to Denver. And he had a remote job out of Cincinnati, so he could go anywhere he wanted and work. And so he worked Eastern hours out in Denver, so he was working like 7 to 3 and was on the mountain by 4 every day you know, during ski season. So he wow. was living the life of Riley. Like he's, he and three, three other buddies lived in a a great house in Denver and they're just having super amount of fun. Um, and then my youngest is in college. So he's in Ohio at Miami of Ohio. Um, he started in a walk-on position on the football team and then decided to play fraternity instead of play football. So he's having fun.
0: How great is that?
1: How it's fun. Great. You got to feel How proud. Kids?
0: I do. I have a son who moved out to Oklahoma. He chased a girl out that way and he's trying to make a go of it out there. And I told him, "Look, go explore. The world's a big place. Don't stop at Oklahoma. Keep going and see the rest of the country. See the rest of the the entire world." I I was fortunate to travel the world right before COVID and actually touched uh, touched foot on every continent in the world in, in one week. Holy cow. Yeah, so we I got to, I've literally got to be on Antarctica. I've got to hit every continent in the world. And it made me realize how small my little circle is when I'm here in Arizona and how big the world really is and how many people are really out there and really get to connect yep. with a bunch of different cultures and a bunch of different people. And I think human kindness is a real thing. And I think humanity is special. And I, I love that you said earlier, That what we do, we deal with humans, and what insurance companies do, they deal with data, and and you you can't lose sight. I, I think I just maybe it's just my naive personality, but I think the human spirit always prevails. I just believe that. I really do. The data is helpful; it's good, strong, but I just you can't take away that that human dynamic, which I think you talk about a lot in your book. Tell me, tell
1: me where people can find this book. Not a good neighbor. Where can they get a copy? You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on Barnes and Nobles. You can find it at Target. You can find it in some local booksellers, at least here in Florida. Um, yeah, it's super easy to find. Just type into your browser, Lebovic, not a good neighbor. It's going to pop up. You can get it anywhere. And the audio book should be coming out in the next, I don't know, three weeks. Are you doing the audio? So, no, 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 no. You, you're way better off having a professional reader than me. So they, I asked, I, you know, because you got to hire somebody to do this. And uh, and I listen to a lot of audiobooks. I don't know if you listen to audiobooks. Or I not, do, but I I run across kind of the same people reading a lot. And there's a guy named Drew Birdseye that is just a great reader. And I asked if we could hire him, and he agreed. So I had this great voice, you know, read my book. And I'm super honored that he agreed to do it. So I I'm excited to hear that come out. Do you know who did Chris Voss's audiobook?
0: I listened to the audio. I read it and I listened to the audio, but I couldn't rem- I, I don't think it was him I didn't to it. I don't know if it was him,
1: but it was so good. It was so good. Like the stories we he's talking about. Once- did it? Because he has such a great voice. Well, he's got and a he got a million dollar voice.
0: Yeah, he might. He may have. I don't know. I just I can't remember. I just was like captivated by the storytelling of like these FBI hostage negotiations. I, I think it was a uh, it was such a good read. Just like Not a Good Neighbor. Can you hold it up one more time, Brian, so people yes, can see I will the, have the have cover?
1: That. I have it. I have it. Locally. Brian Lebovic,
0: author of Not a Good Neighbor, in stores now. Brian, it was so good having you on the Legal Beagle podcast. Uh, Come back and join us again.
1: I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Brian. Peace.